The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 194 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are available on iTunes for free. Just search the One Hour Podcast. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at com, or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, you're back from a week of actually playing poker and uh, taking swings in the live game. So what's happening? How are things? How was your trip? Trip was fantastic. Thank you guys for having me on again, by the way. It's always, I know it gets overstated. Can you, can you guys hear the train in New York? Could you hear that? Could you hear that? that Yeah, I heard that one. That's kind of fun. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm in New York right now. Beautiful day in New York. I think we're going to call this episode the Robitussin monologues because I did get a head cold while I was out on the tour, and I haven't been sick in like a year since I started really trying to take care of my body. I have not gotten sick, so this is very foreign to me. I was trying to tough it out for a few days, just doing the aspirin and everything, and then finally I just went, screw it, (laughs) going to the Robitussin, and... Just because I like cough medicine a little bit more than the average person does, I try to only take it when I really need it. But, yeah, I am here today. I am good. The tournaments went very well, in my opinion. Cashed in the Borgata. uh, Fought through 1,050 people. Got within 38 people of that top spot. But, unfortunately, that got me right there at the end. And the WPT Maryland, it was really funny because my head cold started. Of course, if you're going to get sick for the first time in a year, it's going to be in Atlantic City. And I'm sure all these times, I was just taking Greyhounds because they're 20 bucks, and I'm really into audiobooks. And I don't mind sitting on a bus for three hours for 20 bucks if the alternative is three hours on an Amtrak for $150 or three hours on a plane for 200 to $300. So I was just taking Greyhounds. Sorry, there seems to be some kids playing next to my apartment. So if you guys can hear that, I apologize. But damn, man. This is a, it's like that one scene in Star Wars. Huh? Maybe the train will get them. (laughs) (laughs) 
you had to take it there, Barry. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, uh, I love all the different noises we've had on this podcast over the years. What was it? Construction workers for five years. Yeah, the tropical birds in Costa Rica. The dogs. The dogs would always bark right at the end of an hour, like, hey, buddy, wrap it up. We need our walk. Well, I actually, I just, I think it, you, the whole thing is just a ruse. I think you're just in some Seattle basement somewhere with, like, a soundboard <laughs> doing all these random noises. Like, the train, like, just stock recordings. Just, nah. <laughs> this is, uh, we've already discussed this, Barry. You're Tyler Durden, and uh, I'm a figment of your, your imagination. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I that's, you say that to me on the wrong day, I'm off for six months, you know? Yeah. That's the cracker, that one. But playing live, you know, like, was it good to be back? Was it, you know, we've talked about, like, you know, you're saying the, the bus journeys this time and before we said, I remember... Another time you played, I think it was in Canada, you said, you know, the chain journeys, the reward and stuff. And I, I get that. And I much prefer even not just the cost issue. Um, I was actually looking at going down to London uh, this weekend. And that's like a, a six hour train journey from my city or it's a one hour flight from either my city. But the crazy prices from it because it's a little local airport or I can drive an hour to Edinburgh and then get an hour flight to London, you know. But when you add in airport security checks, going through to be at the airport before, the actual real time spent travelling on the journey it is round about the same as just getting a direct train and relaxing on the train. So I always prefer that way to travel, um, not just a cost thing. But So it's, it's funny you say that because it, it really is. Like before, I would have thought, oh, you know, six hours, come on. You know, but... When you add it up, if you can sit there and maybe, you know, chill, listen to some audio books or read an actual book um, or do some work on your laptop and stuff, it's a nice way to travel. Right. And my only concern has ever been, hey, if I'm packed into a Greyhound station for eight hours, it's really likely I'm going to pick up something. But... As my health has gotten better and better, and I just wasn't getting sick, I didn't think of that. But then between WPT, Borgata, and Maryland, I did develop a head cold, which when I showed up at the tournament, I put on sunglasses just because the light was uh, really playing games with my headache. And the, I was moving really slow just because I felt really weak, and that apparently offended a lot of people because I... What's the difference between a dog and a poker player, Barry? You remember this one? Uh, no, I don't think so. It doesn't ring any bells, actually. Probably when you see it, it will. Uh, what's the difference between a dog and a poker player? At some point, the dog stops whining. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've heard it. Yeah, but, I mean, it was one of those weird things where, from the beginning of the tournament, I had a headache to begin with, and uh, I had this guy... Uh, I want to say his name was Maurice Hawkins. Apparently, circuit regular does really well. Uh, but his whole thing was like trash talk, and I, I just left my headphones in with like really light jazz on, uh, loud enough so I didn't have to hear. And, <clears throat> uh, but it, it, that kind of 
contributed to the headache. But the strange thing was, is I felt I played really well in Maryland with the headache uh, and the runny nose and all that, just because your training is supposed to be really hard. When you're actually playing, most of the situations are not going to be as difficult as what you do in training. What I do when I'm training my poker players is I pick a spot that comes up in one of my sessions, and it'll come up maybe one time out of every eight sessions. It's not something you look for. It's not something you wouldn't notice if you hadn't played five, six years, right, or in my case, 12. And all I do is all day I set up these really difficult situations and I watch my students try to get out of it and I try to give them the thought process that will help them. But, and also what they do is they bring to me the most difficult hands that they've had over the last couple months. So my training is all the most difficult situations you could think of, the most difficult situations I could set up. I try to set up situations that have a commonality or they come up frequently. But when I actually get to the tournament, most of this stuff is pretty routine for me based on what I do every day when it comes to teaching. So it wasn't so hard when I was sick. And I noticed people, when you, uh, I, I was lucky enough to get a lesson about live tells uh, from my friend David. And what he did is he's read a bunch about it and then he applies it when he plays cash and he just pretty much distilled it because my whole thing is just tell me what is the most important stuff. And he said, this is what's the most important. I don't know if he wants me sharing it. So I'm not, <clears throat> I, I'm not going to do a bunch of it here. Uh, I think a lot of it comes up in beyond tells. I think it is uh, probably the better program on that. And but, you know, just like little things that like when people uh, show tension with their hands and stuff and how you can avoid that. And because I had a headache, I just went, OK, your default is actually pretty confident, which is normally when I play cards, since I've been doing it since I was 15 years old, I look fairly confident the way I do it. And that causes people to fold a little bit more than they should because I wasn't looking that strong right then what i ended up doing is just like okay uh just put your sunglasses on automate this a little bit and i noticed it really chopped up a lot of guys that would normally because i think it's uh it's a timing issue which is if someone's going at your rhythm you feel comfortable however if someone's going at a different rhythm you feel uncomfortable and you just go i, I want to get out of this like right away we have this on the street. If somebody comes up, uh, asks us for directions with colloquialisms, you know, it's all very common stuff. However, if somebody comes up and asks us very disconcerting questions and they, uh, we're not used to their intonation, we don't know where they're from, I think people, and if the speed is a little off and you don't know what the person wants, I think the average person is just going to want to get out of that situation as fast as possible. And I think that comes up in poker because really what it is a lot of times is communicating without words. And I noticed I really chopped out a lot of pots in Maryland. 
in Borgata, I was uh, I was ahead on my bluffs. The way I track poker tournaments is a little different than how most people track it. One is my play. Uh, I'm really big on did I play in a way that's befitting of my training. Many poker players don't even bother with that. They have no training. It's just one of those weird things as if Imagine if uh, a footballer just was like, oh, no, I'll learn. Once I get to Premier League, I'll learn. You know, once I once I get out on the pitch, I'll figure it out, right? No, no, no. There's a lot of training ahead of time. And then you want to know if you worked to it at your actual play. So when you get there, I have a couple different ways of tracking, which is, one, did I play – in a way that is befitting of my training. If I ever deviated from my playbook, was there a damn good reason from deviating from my playbook? And I was very proud of that. Uh, I, I felt my performance was excellent this time. There was, hold on, let me just shut the window. This is getting on my nerves. Uh, it was a beautiful day out, and I really wanted to feel that fresh air, but, uh, you know, the problem with children is they scream bloody murder when there is no blood and there is no murder, but a anyhow, uh, I played in a way that I, I notice a lot of the best performers, it's almost their performance is living within their subconscious, and it's a way of getting in a zone and the way I was determining whether I was going to deviate from my playbook was, did my body really feel like, did I subconsciously, did I feel my body in my subconscious reaching for a play that my conscious mind went, well, I don't normally run that. And there was a lot of stuff like that because a lot of the AC players uh, they're very aggressive, and, and I give them that. They're very fearless, but a number of them lack finesse. So you could run bluffs that I haven't run since 2009 online. Uh, just like little things, like you bet really small because you know the guy's going to raise not repping anything, and then you just three-bet it back the second he does it. Like I haven't been able to run that play in a long time. I, I could run that a lot in AC. And I felt... Every time in Maryland or Borgata, I was just really solid on my bluffs. I did a lot of bluffs. I didn't get – I got caught once, but I'm pretty damn sure I ran into the hand uh, just because I never saw this particular player play back ever. So I, I, I just didn't see the bluff. A lot of guys just don't have a bluff, and I, I'm pretty confident after watching this player for 10 hours, he does not have a bluff. But that being said – there's a couple different ways I track myself, which is one is performance-based. The other is systems-based. Do I run through my system every hand? That's very different because you can have an excellent performance and actually really half-ass your system. If you perform very well on a final exam, but you did that by never showing up to class and you just showed up and got lucky because all the questions on the final happen to be questions that were from the final the year before and your buddy lets you in on what those answers were, you shouldn't feel proud of that. You, you really got lucky there. Process would be, you know, every time I finish the hand, I fold the hand, I need to know who opens. I need to know who opened from what position, who cold called, who three bet. Uh, I was really lucky again with, uh, 
my friend David to uh, just help me keep accountable with that at just developing ways that you you could be more attentive to that. Just something like opening up your cell phone. It looks like you're on Twitter like every other poker player, but maybe you're just making a couple button presses and like a little code that tells you this guy opened there, this guy had that, right? Staying attentive. So my system was really good. I, I was like 97, 98% of the hands, I knew the exact action. If I did miss a hand, it was because my coffee showed up and I had to pay for it or something like that. And there were a few times I just spaced out because that happens, but I wasn't watching football or something after somebody bought a piece of me. I'm not built like that. That's not how I do it. But my systems were really good. My play was very good. Whenever I deviated from my system, uh, I, I was very happy with it. My my process, just getting to the tournament, I lifted weights before every time I played, woke up early, got to bed early. It felt really good. And yeah, and part of it, I think, is also, uh, going back to what you were saying earlier, is trying to relax before you get to the tournament is a big deal. Because you kind of have to loosen up. And like you were talking about, audiobooks are a really easy way to loosen up if you're into that. And I think buses, air, air travel is really stressful because you have pressurized cabins. And if you miss one flight, that's it. They might not have another one. You have security. And nobody at security has ever been accused of great customer service. It's never happened. Whereas if you miss a bus, there's probably another one in 30 minutes, right? And if you lose your ticket, it's like 20 bucks. Are you into audiobooks, Barry? A little off topic, but I'm just oh, curious yeah, yeah. about that. I've listened to audiobooks for years. Yeah, I'm getting really into it just with – because I'm always on the subway, and uh, reading on the subway is a little hard just because it – you know, you have to carry a book with you, and a lot of times they just don't want to carry a backpack or something like that, and it's just easier to have my cell phone. Yeah, I just love them, but yeah, I guess uh, uh, the Robitussin monologues are, are a little all over the place. Any other follow-up questions you had about the tournament? Well, the thing that you touched on, I can hear myself back about Alex. Um, Sorry, Barry, one second. No problem. Um... Yeah, the thing that you touched on there, I read something during the week, it was quite funny um, that you sort of mention it. You just use the analogy of someone saying they could turn up and they'll learn the game, you know, when they play in the Premier League, when it's football or, you know, like if it was basketball, like they want to skip college basketball and just go straight to the NBA, whatever. And poker is like that in the same as financial trading is. There was a trader guy I was talking to and he said, it's so funny, it's like people go to law school for, you know, six years to qualify as a lawyer and then practice law, or the medicine, you know, six years till you can become you know, a junior doctor or whatever, and poker and trading, these are things that people just think, that if someone hands me, you know, a $20,000 bankroll or a $50,000 bankroll, I'm now ready straight away, I can go out and just play live and crush live. And if you think about it, all that's really saying is you're not ready because, one, if you could, you would have the money already from poker, that type of bankroll at those stakes because you were such a consistent winner and crushing all these levels. What it'll only do is just you're now going to go and piss away through somebody's money and it'll keep you in the game longer 
because you now don't need to find the money yourself, but eventually you're still going to go broke. You know, and it's just, it's still fascinating in this day with all the info out there, how people can still get into poker and think, all I need is the bankroll, man. You know, I need to play at levels where they respect my raises, that old joke. And it's just, it's funny. I just find it really, really funny. You know, some people are still out there saying that. I see it on social media, you know, with um, if people's tweeting something or that and you, you go back to reply and you catch some of the comments and people are like, yo, just stake me, man. You know, like, throw me in, put me in, coach. You know, like, I'm ready and send me this or you know whatever and it's like money's not the money is not the answer really it's obviously a big part of it in your arsenal without money you can't play competitive cash poker or tournaments you know buying in but you need to have the skills as well or it's just you know you're you are throwing darts at a board sort of thing when you're i think you're absolutely right when you're broke you really focus on what works. There were many people way smarter than me when I started playing cards, but the problem was they came from affluent families, and if they lost the money, there was really no risk, whereas I didn't even start with a deposit on mine. I, I was just running it up from nothing. And if I lost that bankroll, I, I didn't know when I'd get it back. So... Everybody was making fun of me for, oh my God, you play $5 Syngos. How the hell do you think you're going to do anything with that? When I went pro, I was playing $16 Syngos and making a thousand, two thousand a month. And I, I was over the moon, but because most people see poker in the media, they see all the money. That's not these guys' money. They all have backers. And they think that's what that is. They see somebody harping on something that works really well. And they don't really understand what that means. If you can support yourself from poker, that still has a weight that I don't think people realize. This is a card game. This isn't a sport. If you watch... A great athlete, oftentimes their dexterity and IQ in the sport of how good they are with their body, it is such a spectacle. You understand, wow, I get why this guy makes so much money. Poker is just about being clever. It's about taking money from another guy, another grown person who's sitting across the table from you who wants it just as bad as you, and you find a way to trick them out of your money, out of their money, right? That is really hard to do. And there's a reason I told everybody I'm not a professional poker player anymore. There's a big difference between, there's a big difference, let, let's take golf. Golf, there's a, there's a difference. If I get this right, I'm not a golf fan, but I think there's a difference between a golf pro and a professional golfer. A golf pro is like a club pro. He yeah. coaches uh, at the club uh, he's at. Uh, he'll, he'll do some of the local tours or something like that. Uh, he still plays for money. He makes a living. But there's a big difference between that and a professional golfer. A professional golfer, I think, means you have your PGA Tour card, uh, which that that's a really hard 
I think there was only 125 of those guys, if I got that right. So, and I think poker is a little like this. Like, if you just make your money right now, if you're listening to this, we get these letters sometimes, Barry, from guys like, I'm playing 50 now, and I'm only making a thousand a month or something like that. And I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I live in Bulgaria and, you know, that pays my rent of $400 and it gives me some money to live off of, but I don't really feel like I'm anything. And I, I always want to go, what the hell are you talking about? You're a professional poker player because that is solely all your, to me, a professional poker player is all your income is from poker. That's it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't qualify for that because I make a lot of money on the side. That to me would be a poker pro. That's just like a golf pro who probably does a lot of coaching at his resident club. And I think there's a very big difference from that. And I think there's no shame in being a recreational player that's done okay. A recreational player that's not making that much money uh, or actually is even losing a little bit money, but it's money they can afford to lose. And I think what is so astounding to guys like you and me is somebody hands you a lot of money because you're well-spoken or the one that really makes me sad is the guy. I mean, you know, like borrow money from his parents. I've heard that before. And then just ran really good at one tournament and then got a backing deal. And I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. You skipped a lot of steps there. Right. And that's not to say that person couldn't become a professional poker player, but it's, I think the guy who worked his way into it, even like a guy like Tiger Woods, just a phenom, like he didn't, he worked a lot in like junior tours before he went pro, right? He, he had to pay his dues. And like you were saying, like college basketball, there's a lot of paying your dues. And once you get that, I think it's really good to like struggle a little bit and be broke. I really wish I never got backed when I was younger. I made a lot of money before I was backed. And then when I was backed, it, it it's like, it's like you have this business that's got a product that's really good. Right. And what, what's your product? Well, I make hot dogs. Uh, okay. By the way, those guys make a lot of money. Look it up. But okay, you make hot dogs, right? Where where do you sell hot dogs? I sell hot dogs on the side of the street next to Central Park. Okay. Well, you're successful selling hot dogs to the tune of 80K a year. How about I give you a Manhattan restaurant and you take over French cuisine? Did you not hear me? I just said I made hot dogs. Right now, if that guy like expanded from hot dogs to cheeseburgers or something like that, right, that's a more natural transition. If you transition from low stakes sit and goes to low stakes cash or whatever it may be, that makes a lot of sense. But a lot of these guys, I think, have success online and they have success at like 10 and 25 dollar tournaments. And I think what's so wild to you Barry is you see them in thousand dollar live tournaments that is completely different there are guys even in AC where I make fun of 
a lot of those guys for their lack of finesse. They can play cards, and they are fearless. And if you think you can just transport yourself play, from playing $50 online tournaments to staring down the barrel of a live pro who's watching you nervously make a value bet on the river and is ready to blast you with a raise, you got another thing coming. You got you do have to pay your dues. But people are still convinced. I know people probably, even some of our listeners will hear you say that, the reality, and someone who knows what they're talking about yourself saying that, and still deep down, and we've talked about it, and I think some of them need that in them to believe, like, well, not me, I, I'm, I can do that, I'm ready enough. And I think you do have to have some sort of dumb belief, almost, to actually go out and put yourself in these spots to learn. And like you say, like, go and play a game that's maybe a little bit above your station and, and learn from it. But, yeah, expecting to walk in and win these things, I mean, it does happen. We've all seen the main event champions now and again that don't have a clue really in the grand scheme of things and just run, you know, run like God and walk on water for the whole tournament and win it. But I think I'd like to think our core listener uh, sort of base from all the years that we've talked about know that you've there is no shortcut. You've got to you've got to learn everything you can at these stakes and then get to the next one. And then maybe get kicked down again and then relearn or learn things that you've missed at each stake. And the, the best analogy is the computer game, isn't it? You have to pass all the levels and collect all the little tokens to get to the next one truly. Or, or you will just keep going back. Right. And I always go back and forth on that topic you just discussed, which is you do need a little bit of that. Why couldn't it be me? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a really fine line because I think it's best described as why couldn't it be me? I, I don't think if you believe you're destined to do something, I don't think you're ever going to do the work required. However, if you think... I I was very lucky that when I came on the tour, I knew there were guys that were way better than me. And if I had any doubts about that, they were, you know, given how humble poker players are, I was taught. I was told often, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. Look, you suck at this. Look, you suck at this. And I didn't have a feeling of, oh, I can't do this. I think that's a really bad psychological place to be. Mm -hmm. But I did have a feeling of, if I don't bust my ass, this is never going to happen. I think if you believe poker players are some special person that can see through your soul, it's never going to happen. Which is why I wrote the book, The Myth of Poker Talent. If there's one thing that bugs me the most is when people say, like, obviously there's poker talent. I'm like, yeah, buddy, obviously. I'm just saying there's a lot less of it than there is. By the way, people forget these are products. Like, if you're walking through a Barnes & Noble and you see a book that says 
no limit hold'em and its advanced methodologies, you're not going to pick it up. But if you see the myth of poker talent, oh really? There's no poker talent? What? You're going to look it up. But the thing being, I think you need to have a healthy respect for the fact that these people are just normal people. There's no reason it couldn't be you if you don't bust your ass. And I think what you were saying is right, which is I think our base is much more into the hard work aspect. And the thing about it is that's really when you look back, that's what you enjoy the most. Uh, I loved being a card player on the tour. I really loved I, – I, I loved playing cash in Seoul, South Korea. I loved playing in Regensburg, Germany. I loved playing in Dublin, Ireland. I, I loved playing in Rio de Janeiro. I don't think many people get that life. And yeah, it's the sleepless nights and it doesn't work and all that, but sometimes like you win one of these tournaments and it's almost like, and this happened to me when I was younger, I, I came into a lot of success, which I look back now and I realize I wasn't ready for and I wasn't, I was not a good poker player when I went, ran into a lot of that. Like I was, I was fearless, I'll give myself that. And I ran at people and people folded to me much more than they should. And that's another metric that I forgot to mention when I play these poker tournaments is in my head or not on my bluffs. I think a lot of people just take it for granted that their seed bet's going to work or not. And in my opinion is that's BS. If your seed bets are not working consistently, you're probably seed betting too much or seed betting to amounts that are just really dumb because there's no schematic behind it. Whereas I always took great pride in my seed bets work than, more than most people because they know three barrels are coming. And finding out when a guy wanted three barrels and just checking, that was the greatest feeling in the world. And I had a bluff. I had a really defined bluff back when people were really bad at picking off bluffs. But that was pretty much it. And winning all that money right at the beginning, it, it was almost like going back to your analogy of the computer game. It was almost as if I accidentally hit a cheat code and the game was over. And it was really hard to learn anything for six to nine months or a year or whenever I was supposed to be this really great poker player because if I ever showed, like, if I ever asked people, what do you do here? They'd be like, don't you know? You're supposed to know. In that attitude of, like, hey, every poker player, it is so strange to hear a poker player say, like, what do you do here? Like, what? What do you think you should do here? Like, you don't hear poker players do that a lot. They do a whole lot of, like, obviously I know what to do. And it's like, I wasn't, I didn't come out the womb a great poker player, right? And I don't know, to this day, I still take, I took hands back from these tournaments and put them on my computer and thought through them again. And the fact that some of these guys have been playing for three years, like, could you imagine... Any other competitive endeavor where people are like, oh, I've been doing this for three years. I got this. Mm -hmm. that, that is mind-blowing to me. That, and it's really – and the saddest thing, I, I guess the final note I'd like to put on this is you're not going to learn how to box until you get hit in the face. And you're not going to learn how to play poker until you go broke.
you're not going to learn how to play poker until you have a terrible series. And I don't really think you're going to know how to play tournament poker until you have five terrible series, until you have a terrible year or two. I really don't. So I don't blame these people that are listening right now because I was the exact same person when I was 19, 22 of like, F you, I'm different, right? But it's just like anything in life. If you don't go out there and quite frankly get hit in the face with a little failure, you're not going to see how much work this is going to have to take. And I almost feel bad for, I, I think what, uh, just slightly off topic, but I think a lot of people would agree with this, and I, I don't think it gets talked about enough, but this is my real worry about the obsession with university. Because it's not enough to get a degree now, you also have to go to graduate school. And it's amazing to me to meet 30, 35-year-olds going to their first job interview. And I almost think that's like your university has done a great disservice to you because you're not going to really know how much effort you're going to need to exert until you're out in the real world and you learn some of these lessons. None of this is your fault. You couldn't know any of this stuff. But the and I understand if you're going to be a doctor, like obviously if you're going to be operating on someone, please stay in school as long as possible. Don't leave a scalpel in my thigh. I'd really appreciate that. But many times, just the overemphasis on, especially in this country, it was just a fetish 10, 15 years ago where you have to get, you have to get a college degree. You have to get a college degree. Well, what should you get a college degree in? Well, just anything. It's like, no, man, I think, you know what's going to help you learn? If you want to become a card player, you're going to have to play cards. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. And people are like, what should I play? And I'm like, every waking hour of every day, I was playing cards or I was studying cards. When I was in high school, Everybody made fun of me because there wasn't a moment I wasn't reading a poker book. The second I got out of high school, I was in some home game somewhere. I was in the back of breweries. I was in check cashing places. I was in residential homes owned by senior citizens. I was everywhere playing cards. And when those games weren't going on, I was playing online. I played sit and goes. I played cash games. I played tournaments. I played till four in the morning. I got two hours of sleep, woke up, did it again. I stayed up for days at a time. That's how you do it. There's no finesse. It's all getting lesson after lesson after lesson. And this goes for life as well. If you want to be successful in life, I honestly think you should spend a year as a bartender. I think you should spend a year as a taxi driver. I think you should travel and be piss poor. I think... You should fail as a playwright. I think you should go out there and fail as much as possible and learn from each one of these things because if you are in this weightless existence where your parents pay for everything and you cannot fail because you are constructed within these safe spaces, just like the astronauts that are in weightless existences for eight months of their life, rest becomes atrophy. And you get to a point, you have atrophied to a point where you cannot recreate yourself. You cannot regenerate that muscle tissue, much less 
Put on the muscle tissue that is going to help you burden the weight that will allow you to become successful. We can take a question now. That's all I got. Okay. Um, that is the plan. Myself and Alex are going to record two episodes back to back. Obviously, there was no show last week. So we're going to do a question now. And however long it takes Alex to answer that one, we will end the show after this question. And then the next episode will just be full on questions because the question list I have is bulging, Alex. I mean, there's tons of stuff here. Um, so next episode, there will be tons anyway to deal with. Um, the question for this episode is from Steve. Hi, Barry. Love the podcast. And thanks to you and Alex for answering one of my previous questions. I have another question for Alex, this time about big blind three bet strategy. Could Alex outline his regless three bet strategy from the big blind against cut off and button raisers at say 50 big blinds plus and what population reads he uses in constructing this strategy? I have seen widely different three bet ranges advocated by good pros. Some prefer using bluffs like 5-3 suited, 6-4 suited, etc. While I have seen others use a much more linear strategy using all the suited broadways, ace-nine suited, uh, king-jack-off, queen-jack-off, etc. I think, if we think readless, the average villain tends to call three bets a lot, but rarely four bets, then I can see the argument behind a wide linear three-bet range, while the polarised range also has value deep, given we can rep high cards as well as hitting low-card boards, and also hitting some big hands, which may not be a large part of our perceived range. All the best. Many thanks, Steve. Hey, Steve. Thank you for that question. It's really funny that we're doing this question because this really plays into the last two tournaments I played because after every tournament, I write down, this needs to be improved. That needs to be improved. If you're not improving from tournament to tournament, I, I don't know what the hell you're doing. Honestly. And one thing, I, these were what I wrote down. Let me see if I can find it on my notebook. After WPT Borgata, I said focus wavered a bit day three. Had to find faster way to keep track. Took care of that. Number two, uh, I felt like the speed of play was being seen differently by better players. Like, I generally act really fast. And that's perceived by some people as bluff. Other people just think it's the nuts. And I, I was trying to find a way to differentiate between those two. And I, I was really... I, I think I figured out the way to do that, which is just don't play fast. But, yeah, anyway. Uh, the third thing I put down was uh, big blind three betting ranges because I really backed off on it in the Borgata because online people, when you three bet from the big blind, they're, they're just playing so many tables. They go, what is this? Because it's still not that common of a play, and you get a lot of folds, like more folds than you should. Live, nobody's folding you, right? And live, I also noticed nobody was folding to my river bets. So 
I didn't mind calling out a position because let's say the board comes seven six four and I have a six. I I check call a bet. The turn is uh nine. It goes check check. On the river is just a two. I can't bet there for value online because a lot of guys online are not just calling with any two cards. I mean, if you're on America's Card Room, which is pretty damn soft, regardless about what people whine about, uh, like, I've watched enough poker. I know a lot of people call too much there. But let's say you're playing on, like, Party, right? Or you're playing on Poker Stars. The average guy is not going to call you there with an underpair fourth pair, right? I mean, live, they might just call you with ace high. Because screw you, man. Because they got to watch you stack the chips if they fold. And a lot of guys, especially, there is nothing more tremendous to me than the frailty of the male ego. And it is prominently on display when you play no limit hold them live. You've seen, we've talked about this, Barry. Like, how many times a guy just calls on the river and you're sitting there stunned because you're a hustler. You're Let's all be frank. Barry is a very cold-hearted hustler. And Barry's not giving away a dime ever. It's not going to happen. So when you see a guy call off just like whatever, he knows it's wrong, doesn't your, don't your eyes, don't you have to fight from keeping your eyes bulging out of your head, Barry? Yeah, especially I think in the cash game when you just see the complete you know, that type of player that just puts it in. They've already got their money ready. They've already got their hand in their pocket ready for a reload. And, you know, they know. They're just they're just literally donating the money. That that one always blows my mind. Or they my my favorite one is they have the hand above the muck. Like they throw in the call and they're already motioning toward the muck. Yeah. That that one because I mean deep down I I almost think, do you think it's an impediment to grow up rich to be a poker player? Barry Greenstein used to say that wasn't a good thing. Mm. You needed to want it pretty bad, even after you had money. Like, just, the, I, I remember mowing a lawn for five hours and getting paid 20 bucks, so I'm not giving you $80 on any river. I, I don't care if we're playing one, two, and I've played 25 50 before. Not that I ever played 25-50 successfully, guys. Let's be clear. I did, I did move up at one point. It didn't go terrific. I moved back down. But anyway, uh, live, by the way, I never, ever, ever would touch 25-50 online. But anyhow, moving forward, I little bit of a little bit of another thing I'd like to talk about at these tournaments, which does fit into this, is uh, there's a bunch of different ways to give up in a tournament. I don't push the three bet as much when people just give up on river calls constantly. Because if I call out a position, I, I can get value from like third pair or fourth pair, and you have no double barrel. Like, my profit is going to be greater three betting. That That's one thing we should talk about, Steve, is your profit margin is always going to be better three betting than it is flatting. The problem is just keeping your stack is worth a dollar total. Like if somebody busts in a poker tournament, your chips go up in value. So like every hand you fold with somebody busts, your chips go up in value. And you're risking the accumulation of all the future hands you were likely to play if you did not three bet 
Queen A suited out of position without a clear plan if you do do that. But the only times I really fudge it and start flatting there is when people will not fold to me. And in the book, God, it was tremendous how much people were calling me down. I, I just loved it again and again. And it was just, it was so fun. And I just couldn't believe it again and again people called me down. And I was, I hadn't shown a bluff. I had not shown one. I, I, I was like, what are, you, what are you calling with? Like, especially when you table third pair and they mock, they're like, what, what could it have been? Do you think I check called out of position, check the turn and ledge, just airball? How many guys do that? People don't do that because it usually doesn't work. But yeah, anyway, the other way people give up all the time, I saw this at uh, the tournament, big name pro that'll remain nameless. People always do that. How do these name pros go off the planet? Well, I'll tell you one. One, they don't three bet anybody anymore uh, because, you know, when you're starting out and you're poor and you're living in your parents' basement, uh, and they're yelling at you to get a real job, like, you know, Domino's is hiring. Come on, buddy. Uh, like, you, you're you a little angry, right? So you three-bet people all the time. And uh, analytics-wise, like, three-bets are bonkers. Good. And then, you know, you you win the tournament. You mellow out. You get a backing deal. It's not your money anymore. You start dating a girl who really would have been into you, too, when you were looking at that Domino's job. And... You mellow out and you stop three bending. That's the other one. The other thing is they just – I've watched this at the Borgata. A guy like uh, – I'm not going to say the specific board because he's, he's going to figure out who I'm talking about. But no, a guy like C-Bet's flop, C-Bet's turn, total novice, satellite winner, clear as day, check raises like three times the pot on the turn. Guy like begrudgingly – puts his chips in with an overpair and the other guy shows the set. It's like, what did you think he had? Like, in the, the worst part is it's not like the guy tanked for a few minutes and then said like, okay, I really, I really think he, uh, I really think he could have some open-ended straight draws. I really think he'd have some flush draws here, which by the way, they never check call check raise on the turn with, but okay, fine. Somehow you think this guy's a cash game player and he's just fumbling his chips in his, in a live tournament, right? And, uh, but just gives it away, right? Anyway, if you see a lot of that stuff, let's say like guys just giving it away with one pair, there was a lot of that at these tournaments. The first play I'm dropping is the three bet from the blinds because I'm really proud of my three bet from the blinds lately. It's, I've got it up to five big blinds per hand from the small blind. But as far as read lists, the big question is always, can I predict this guy, what this guy is going to do on the flop, and will this guy four-bet me? If the answer is yes, I know what this guy is doing on the flop, and no, this guy will not four-bet me, I'm three-betting with a lot more than I should probably admit here. And one thing to remember is, a lot of guys in three-bet pots, let's say the board doesn't come with two cards nine or higher. You're almost always good on that board, right? On an A-side board, you can bet really small. Usually if the guy doesn't have an ace, he's going to go away. If it's not an A-side board, 
you can bet small, then bet bigger on the turn. That'll usually fold down high cards. Or you can just bet big right on the flop. That'll usually fold down high cards. But you got to know it's going to be a guy who folds out high cards. If it's a guy who's been running really well for a few years, he's probably not going to fold out high cards. If the guy looks like he's going to hyperventilate right after he flats you, he's probably going to fold high cards. you got to know which one is which, and that's kind of the art form of poker. And uh, online, you can use statistics. You can see, like, the four bets, like, 12% or less, or, like, even 15% or less is fine. You can see the fold to C-bet is, like, 60%, right? It's, it's very honest. Average is about 50. 60 is a little bit more exceedingly honest. And even though they probably, that number drops when they're in position, you can make it go right back up to 60 if you bet something a little bit bigger than half pot because that's going to jog them back to their habits because, whoa, this looks weird. Okay, I got a high card. What do I do with high card? Well, versus a big old bet, I'm going to fold. There you go. He's got a high card or worse 45% of the time. If you bet three-fourths of the pot, which would be a massive bet, that only needs to work 42.8% of the time. I think you're going to get out of this a lot. The other thing, but when people are three-betting out of position, I think the biggest mistake that people make is they don't realize that the double barrel is almost always the hand. So let's say... You three bet ace-10. Guy calls you. Board comes king-10-4. You check. He bets. You call. Turn is a five. You check. He bets. Not a lot of guys bet queen-jack there. I mean, they exist, right? But it's not 100%. It's like 50% of the guys, right? Not, not many guys bet to buy the show down there either, right? That's mostly an Eastern European play. You'll see that with, like, Romanians, Bulgarians, Russians, right? Not even Russians that much anymore. I saw it mostly Eastern Europe, right? So you can't really put that guy on that play. So usually what it is is it's a king, right? So you should be leaning toward a fold here. That doesn't mean you fold all the time. Sometimes the guy's very aggressive. Uh, sometimes the guy has, like, a very high turn aggression frequency but no river aggression frequency. But all things considered, you don't know anything. Readless, you can usually trust the guy. Uh, it, he's probably got it. And I can tell you, you can do this because I was just playing two 3.5Ks and I was in that situation. I, I don't want to say how many times because I can't remember, honestly. I was in that situation numerous times. I think once that I can remember the guy double barreled. The other six or seven times or whatever it was, the guy just checked. And he let me know it was good on it was good on the river. Now, obviously, once in a while, it's like King Jack, and the guy just pot controlled. But people are usually pretty binary here. They'll bet like King Queen, Ace King, and they'll check everything else. And that makes it pretty easy for you to value bet on the river. And the other thing is, in tournaments, if I'm playing cash, the reason I don't pursue cash is I I just think there's I'm not the best poker player in the world, but I am one of the best poker players over five days. Like, I have that endurance, right? The other thing about tournament poker is you can just, it's so fun to exploit these guys who play like they got free tickets, right? One of those things is, like, you got second pair on the river, you just bet third pot in a tournament, they'll just call you with, like, sevens. That's not going to work, even if you're playing, like, if you're playing 1-2 in Las Vegas, I have played 1-2 games at, like, the Venetian for fun, where I... A guy is picked up that I'm doing a thin value bet, and he bombs me on the river, right? That I cannot remember the last time that happened to me at a tournament, even when you're playing these WPTs. So 
The big thing to remember is the double barrel is almost always, it's usually the hand, right? Because you think about a three bet pot, especially you were talking about 50 big blind stacks. Now think about, think about this. You open a 2.5x. The three bet is to 7.5x. Your three bet should always be like three to 3.5x. I lean towards the bigger. Like my three bet will be like 8.5x, 9x there. So let's say it goes to 7.58. You call. 16 big blinds in the middle. The guy checks you on the flop, bets 10. He calls. Well, now think about your stack. 50x minus 18, you got 32. You're, you're very uncomfortable right there. You're, you're not firing that turn without a hand. So generally, what happens is the guy backs off. Even if, it, and this is one of the more common stacks. 40, he's in a goofy spot there. 50, he's in a goofy spot there. 16, 70, he's slightly more comfortable, but most guys still won't fire the turn guy. In 100 big blinds, most guys don't have familiarity with 100 big blinds in tournaments. They play 100 big blinds in cash games, and they're comfortable with fiery there because as Barry was just bringing up, you know, you can just bring out the money and reload. But in the tournament in their head, especially, usually you got to wait for a tournament, right? The, the weekly tournament is the weekly tournament for a reason. It happens once a week. Uh your, those events, you know, they usually only come around to that area once every few months if you're lucky. So you have been preparing for this tournament for a few days. So someone puts you on one of the first hands with 100 big blinds in a spot where you have to bluff off like 30, 40% of your chips to do something. Nine out of 10 guys are not going to do it. So you can bank on that usually pretty hard. The other thing to remember is with a lot of these young guys, let's say you get a board like, uh, this is one of my, I, again, this is something I shouldn't be talking about. Boards like King of Diamonds, Seven of Clubs, Four of Diamonds. This is a board, like, let's say I even leave two-thirds pot. Young guy's just going to call me, see what I do on the turn. But if I check to them, a lot of them are so damn face up. Because what they'll do is, in their mind, everybody's tricky. So with, like, their King, Queen, King, Jack, King, Ten there, they just check back, right? When they got nothing, they fire. And you just check raise 1.2x pod and they piss and they moan and they make fun of you and then they fold and you go, okay, you can talk all you want. I, you still got to play me. That's it, man. That's those kind of things. I just gave you some rough guidelines because my big idea when I try to teach is let me give you a few ideas and guys, everything I tell you, make it your own. Okay. Overcoaching is a big problem in everything, but in no limit hold'em, it's a big deal too, right? You'll see a lot of guys in back end stables who were very good before they got into a back end stable just stall out because they're trying all these ideas that they don't really understand the totality of and they're foreign to them. No, no, no. Listen to what I say, take what works, leave the rest, but have the willingness to try new things. And I think you should try to three bet a little bit more, especially in smaller stakes tournaments where people are still taking it seriously, but you're fine I'm losing the buy-in. So that's something I, I'm actually, I've been writing a lot of notes down because I backed off on that in the big tournaments. I was wondering, eh, was that a great idea? Should I have done it? I obviously worked into a profitable trip, but it really hurt my soul not to go after some people in some of these situations, although it did pay off in the Bulgara. Okay. Um, that is all we got time for this episode. Um, Alex, how can people get in touch with you for information on the products that you have for sale, 
and anything else in between. You guys, I'm going to be featuring a lot of uh, my hands from the World Poker Tour on Jonathan Little's little quiz site. So if you guys want to check that out, be sure to check out that site. Uh, also, doing uh, more classic training videos. And by that, I mean hand history reviews, uh, reviewing student hand histories, uh, reviewing uh, just my deep runs online. Uh, you can check that out at Tournament Poker Edge. And follow me on Twitter, at The Assassinato. And write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com uh, if you want to write me. And if you want to sign up for my newsletter to get pretty much every other day, you'll get a free article, free video, uh, free podcast like you're listening to here, a lot of strategy content, go to pokerheadrush.com. That's my ancient blog so please ignore how it looks go to the top right and sign up there and you'll get much better looking emails that come to your inbox every other day every few days and uh be sure to go to your if you want to be a real all-star go to your email and add alex at pokerheadrush.com to your contacts to make sure that you get every one of those emails if you're not getting my emails that's why it's just your spam filter is going really hard uh, against my MailChimp uh, campaigns. So, and, uh, oh, there was one other thing I was going to say. But, yeah, check out my check out my blogs on America's Card Room. I, I'm just stalling right now trying to think of the next thing. But, oh, you do want to sign up for that newsletter. If there's a time to sign up, it's right now because I have a ton coming up now that I'm back. Uh, from my life. The trip. Sunday so Major is back to the USA. America's okay. Card Room is and kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1 million and $1 on the table every week. Yes, $1 million and $1 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1 million and $1 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a month. For, for all the info, check out America's Cheers. 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 Cheers